The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com. Welcome to this episode of Security Clearance and Security on Federal News Radio. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Lauren Bacon-Smith. Lauren is the Chief People Officer at Enabled Intelligence. Enabled Intelligence provides data labeling and secure AI data testing. But one of the reasons I wanted to chat with Lauren today is really Enabled Intelligence had this culture of DEIA before DEI even had an A in the name. I feel like I've come across your organization in a few different ways and places and I've just been super impressed by your commitment to doing excellent work supporting national security, but really having this culture kind of aroma around your community where you are doing work that also promotes inclusivity in a really unique and special way. So we know this is a big trend across federal government, something that federal government is trying to do. I think there's companies like Enabled Intelligence that are doing it in a really special, unique way that I think the government itself can learn from too. So I was really excited to have you on the show, Lauren, and to have you talking with me today. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're clearancejobs.com. So we love career journeys. I know you've worked as a recruiter in this space, kind of how did you get to a focus or role around culture and inclusivity? And then now talk about how at Enabled Intelligence really as a company writ large, you kind of help support and promote that. Yeah, I spent almost nine years at a really large international hospitality company and built a military hiring and support program. The company I worked for had a really large focus on culture overall, but definitely diversity and inclusion. And when I was moving into a new opportunity, that was really kind of what I wanted to focus on was that diversity piece and really, you know, an opportunity to have it be something more meaningful than just a program that checks a box or has to be there. So when I got connected with Peter Kant, the CEO here at Enabled Intelligence, with this opportunity to work at a brand new startup and be the first hire, something I had never really thought about before, but I could tell that this being a technology company, that the first hire that he was making, having that be centered around people and culture, that that was something that was going to be taken really seriously here. And that really is kind of, you know, the foundation of everything that we do. Okay. I love that. I actually see, and I, I learned a new story today around that. So I did not know know that you were the first hire there. So kind of tell you about that. So being at a startup from the get-go, I certainly, you know, enabled intelligence has grown. Maybe talk about how building culture has helped your company to grow. Yeah. Pete started the company in March of 2020. So we all know that time frame was when the world basically shut down. So 
We had the challenge of starting a new company during a pandemic and trying to build a culture virtually. But we have kind of a unique mission here at Enabled Intelligence where we have a focus around hiring people with disabilities. And that disability piece is often left out of a lot of companies' programs around diversity and inclusion. Really, the way that we got started was just looking at ways that we could build a truly inclusive culture for all people. We wanted everyone here, whether you have disability or not, to be able to bring their full selves to work and be comfortable being themselves. We really look at it in the way that everyone has different ways of learning. Everyone has different ways of communicating. We all have things that help us be productive. If we have different challenges, benefit of being a new startup and being on the small side of businesses is that we are able to really take the approach where we try to look at each of our team members as an individual. And instead of trying to fit them into a box, we look at ways that we can work with them and accommodate them and make them successful here. And we do that from the very beginning in our recruiting process through how we work with our teams once they are hired. Yeah, and walk me through that recruiting process a little bit, because that's something I've heard Peter describe before. And I know when I heard it as someone who works for a career site, I thought it was really amazing, just some of the very simple ways that you've made your hiring process more accessible and just kind of helped to make it easier for diverse candidates or candidates with neurodiversity or different aspects. I think one of the things that Peter had mentioned another time I heard him talking was about how like pivoting around the technical interview, right? A lot of technical positions, you'll have a first a get to know you interview first and then get in the technical piece. But some of first of those interviews, I think he said you would flip that and actually do a technical interview because depending on the person, having that personal interview and, and getting asked a lot of questions about your personality could actually weed out candidates that are highly qualified for the job, but simply um, aren't going to respond well in that kind of an interview setup. So talk to me about interviews or just other things like that that you do to kind of enable diverse candidates. Yeah, so we really, when we started building our job descriptions to get ready to post our openings, we looked at what was actually needed for the job. You know, every job description you see out there has things listed like strong verbal and written communication skills. Neither one of those mattered to us. Having a charismatic characteristics and, and personality, you know, whether those are written on a job description, people are normally evaluating those types of things in interviews. And we really just tried to strip away everything that didn't actually matter. You know, we don't care if people have a college degree or even a high school degree, because when it comes down to it, that doesn't impact their ability to do the job that we need them to do successfully. So we pulled away all of those things. And when it came down to it for the position that we hire for the most, there weren't too many things that we were looking for on paper in terms of somebody's resume. We really don't focus very much on someone's resume. We you know, have an application online that we have them fill out. And then exactly like you were describing that, you know, Peter has spoken about before, we go straight to a technical assessment. And we've built the assessment around knowing that these individuals are not going to have any previous experience doing what it is that we do. But we really built the assessment to screen for the ability to follow directions and the aptitude to be able to be trained in this space. 
And if they pass that assessment, we then do a virtual meeting with them. I would even say it's probably a stretch to call it an interview because we're not asking them questions and quizzing them. We send them all the things that we're going to talk about in advance. We're not trying to catch them or trick them or catch them off guard. It's really about just having a discussion with them around what did they think of the assessment and is it something that they could see themselves doing. We talk to them about what it's like to work here. A lot of the people that apply for jobs here that have disabilities or that are neurodiverse have had a really challenging time either getting a job or keeping a job. And it's not because they are not capable, intelligent, and don't have the skills. It's because companies are so rigid around what they think that they need and they're looking for and having everyone fit inside this box of how people should communicate and act and behave. So we really just take all of that away. And, you know, this this is something that would benefit every company, especially right now with such a talent shortage and people struggling to find the talent that they need. Everyone wants people to have years of experience coming into certain roles. And of course, a lot of roles that, you know, you do need that. But are you limiting yourself and making it harder to bring in talent that could be super successful and make your company super successful that instead of looking at what they've done in the past, look at what they're capable of doing for you in the now or in the very near future with the right resources and training? I love that. And I'm actually super surprised. I don't know if I've ever had anyone say that they have sent applicants the questions in advance. I'm kind of racking my brain right now. But it does make a lot of sense that, I mean, we kind of do sometimes set up the quote unquote interview process as a gotcha. But especially, again, for candidates with social anxiety or a lot of different things, that's going to kind of set them up for failure. So I'm super intrigued by that. And, it's, and do you know other companies yeah. that are doing that, Lauren? Like, am I missing the boat? But that I, actually sounds I super wise. don't. I don't think so. You know, like I know the MITRE Corporation is another company that has a really large focus around diversity and inclusion as well as neurodiversity included in that. And I think they might do something along those lines. But yeah, you know, it's, we really try to kind of have the mindset more of like, instead of trying to screen people out, we're trying to screen them in. Like you mentioned, the social anxiety piece, preparation and just letting people know what's going to be happening. Like that's an accommodation that we try to make and do for most things. And it's something that's completely free and doesn't really take much time. It's just thinking about doing things a little bit differently. And again, that's something that benefits everyone, regardless of disability or neurodiversity, knowing what you're walking into and being able to just mentally prepare when we are all so busy and stressed and have so many things on our mind, it's just setting everyone up for success. It's not a super hard ask, right? Because I know I work with a ton of companies and they talk about for the DEIA reason have tried to make their interview questions more universal, right? So they're asking everybody the same questions. And so they're making that aspect of the hiring process, but you're just kind of extending it one more step. And it's going to actually make it not just easier on our recruiters, but also on our candidate side applicants to have this information as well. So we're going to go ahead and give it to them. Yeah, you know, you're just allowing them to bring their best self and be able to have the discussion with you that you're hoping to have with them. You know, I don't think it's like somebody's going to make something up, they could make it up on the spot or in advance, but you risk 
somebody, you know, asking them a question and them not being able to articulate or communicate an example or answer that you were hoping to get from them just because they on the spot weren't able to do that. But especially like the type of work we're doing, our team members are never put in those types of situations where we need them to be able to get up and do some type of public speaking or be in an interview situation like that. And most positions aren't. So how is that the evaluation of them being able to do a good job? You know, we don't care if the candidate, you know, is making eye contact or is super chatty or not. You know, we don't care. Yeah. And it's really just thinking that what is the best fit for the candidate. And I love one of the things you've highlighted too, though, you have this culture around accessibility. It's not a hundred percent of your workforce. So kind of talk about the inclusivity piece of it, too, which I know is also a founding principle for you guys. So how do you keep your workforce that is diverse and comes with people with different different backgrounds, and experiences and making them all feel a part of the company culture? We have about 50 percent of our workforce that identify with having a disability. And but that's all of our policies, all of our processes, everything that we do applies to everyone. And that's really, you know, I mentioned, we just try to think of having a very inclusive culture versus like a disability friendly culture. It's everything we're doing does benefit everyone because it allows us all to continue thinking differently, working differently, especially with the work that we do within AI you have to have that diversity because you want people looking at things different ways and doing things different ways. If everyone was exactly the same, then you're going to end up having a lot of bias in your data, which is a big problem in AI. So diversity is not only just something that we're doing to get talent. It's something that majorly benefits our business and our clients. And one of the things I've appreciated about enabled intelligence is for being around not a very long time, you've gotten pretty good at getting invested back in your community around federal government contracting and other partners in this space. So kind of talk about maybe what's going on across the federal government now around this topic, how you're being a voice in that conversation, some of the relationships you're building, events you're attending, and kind of what momentum you're seeing in government to make inclusivity more common. We have joined up with a few other organizations to create a group. It's a very grassroots effort called the Neurodiversity in National Security Network. We just wanted to start bringing together different organizations, federal agencies, you education groups. We have resource support groups and nonprofit organizations. Anyone that works in this space, we wanted to bring people together to start talking about how do we create more opportunities within national security careers for neurodiverse individuals, whether that be in contract companies like Enabled Intelligence or directly within the federal government and national security and IC organizations. It's definitely a hot topic and a growing topic right now. I actually just got the briefing on the stats and numbers for the IC around diversity and inclusion. And over the last few years, I was just going over it today. It was really interesting. So it's definitely something that's being tracked, not only numbers internally, but new hires and promotions being tracked for ethnicity, gender, and disability. 
So it's definitely a focus down to very detailed data points. Yeah, and you bring up a good point. I mean, I do think the intelligence community has tried to focus a lot more on the diversity and how it applies to different aspects of working within the IC. And one of those is the security clearance process. And this is something I've also heard you talk about before or enabled intelligence about, you know, the clearance process, because, you know, you have to pivot the application process a little bit to make things a bit more inclusive for candidates. The security clearance process, however, can seem a little stagnant, but as a company and an employer, there are steps that you know you can certainly take or even working with the federal government to help them maybe improve this process. Can you speak at all to the security clearance process or any unique examples of things that either you've noticed trying to work some of your people through the security clearance process or how that affects different candidates differently from your experience? Yeah, that is actually kind of a big topic within this group that we've brought together because there have been challenges for neurodiverse individuals to get through that clearance process. I do believe that there's some updated training and talks of training going on to try to make that process a little bit more inclusive. I do know that there also have been some agencies that have created partnerships to help their neurodiverse team members go through the process. We have most of our team members going through the clearance process right now as well, going back to the try to prepare them and give them as much information about what something is going to be like. And that's something that I think is going to be continued to be worked on in this space. Awesome. Lauren, was there anything else you wanted to highlight or touch on? No, I think really looking at your hiring and culture internally, once you have made those hires, to retain that talent. Awesome. I love it. Thank you so much, Lauren, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, Lindy. Attorney advertisement, not a guarantee or warranty of results. I'm attorney Sean Bigley. The denial or revocation of your security clearance is a devastating blow, but effective legal representation can make a difference. Contact my team at Bigley Ranish LLP for a free case evaluation. Find us online at biglylaw.com. Federal security clearances are all we do. Welcome back. I am attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm here with my co-host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about social media monitoring for security clearance holders. And Lindy, I know this has come up most recently as part of the government's transition to the Trusted Workforce 2.0 framework, which is the emerging framework for security clearance policy going forward. To my knowledge, I don't think that's been made public yet. But I know that you've kind of heard rumblings about some of this stuff. What have you heard? Let's take a walk down memory lane in history, Sean, because you refreshed my memory earlier. We had Security Executive Agent Directive 5 released in May 2016. We have written about it clearancejobs.com. And what that policy did was opening the door to say, hey, social media monitoring or review could be a part of the security clearance process. And if I screw any of this up, Sean, you can correct me later. But basically, the, the government is allowed to do this, right? It outlined that this can be done. And then we kind of forgot about it because at Clearance Jobs, what we continued to hear from the government was, well, we can do it, but we haven't figured out how to yet, so we're not. Well, I have today problems and I have tomorrow problems and I have enough today problems that I don't worry about tomorrow problems. So I didn't really think about if the government was monitoring my Facebook or tweets or for those of you crazy enough to be on TikTok, monitoring that. But what I have heard is that now that Trusted Workforce 2.0 is rolling out and 
and they are overhauling the security clearance process from its 1947 framework and updating the federal investigative standards, what you will start to see are background investigators looking at social media if they have a reason or trigger to do so. Again, I mean, they kind of like to be a little bit squirrely about what they actually check in the process. What we know is what's outlined in seed five. And then what we also know is that they are kind of theoretically allowed to do it. So as our attorney in residence, Sean, maybe kind of outline what are some of the things in seed five that you think could be a part of what background investigators might actually look at. I will definitely do that, but I will actually uh, do our listeners one better. And I will share some very specific things that were looked at in an actual case. And believe it or not, this is actually something that has been in effect as far as I know, only at one of the intelligence community agencies, that's the only place that I've seen it. It's been a number of years, actually. They were real hot to trot on this. And this particular agency went out of the gates fast on this as soon as CAD5 was issued. And we saw our first and only case involving social media monitoring at this agency, I believe in late 2016, early 2017. And it was really a shocker for us because like you, we had kind of heard about this. We were obviously familiar with CAD5 being issued, but it was one of those things where they put the policy out there and then everybody just sort of looked around at each other and said, okay, well, maybe we'll get to it next year. You know, And that's happened year after year after year ever since it's been issued, at least at you know the vast majority of agencies that we've dealt with. And that's not to say that we haven't seen other cases involving social media. We've seen cases where somebody's posts on social media have gotten them into trouble. We've seen cases where people have been communicating privately on social media inappropriate content, and that somehow found its way to the wrong person and resulted in them getting in trouble. None of that has come from social media monitoring. That's all been sort of organic. Somebody put something on the internet, somebody got mad, somebody printed it or forwarded it to security officials. That's how it's come about. There's one time where we've seen it Actually, part of the adjudicative process, security officials on their own motion issued a denial of a clearance on the basis of social media monitoring. I want to talk about first the specific things that were in that case that showed us what was being actually looked at. So number one, social networks, the obvious. I think when we hear social media, that's what we all think of. Facebook, LinkedIn, believe it or not, it even included MySpace. Again, this was like late 2016 early 2017. I didn't even know it was still around back then, but (laughs) apparently it was. Microblogging websites, including Twitter and StumbleUpon, blogging and forums websites, WordPress, Tumblr, LiveJournal being some examples, pictures and video sharing websites like YouTube, Flickr, and Flickster, music websites, Pandora, I like a handful of others. And I'll come back to this one in a minute because I think some people are going music websites. What in the world? online commerce websites, eBay, Amazon, ePinions, dating network websites, Match.com, eHarmony, Chemistry.com, geosocial network websites, including Urban Spoon and TripAdvisor, and news and media websites where people can comment. So that was the whole scope of what was included in this social media monitoring report that we got as part of this case. And I remember, I mean, I almost fell out of my chair when I got this because I looked at it and went, what on earth? I mean, music websites, where is the relevancy of much of this stuff to the security clearance process? And I remember even joking about it with the agency at the time saying, are you guys trying to say that if somebody listens to, you know, heavy metal that, you know, they're an anarchist? I mean, that's crazy. What is the possible relevancy here? And the idea, I think, behind this 
and I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying what, you know, was sort of communicated to us is that, you know, they are trying to get a comprehensive picture of who this person is and who you as a security clearance applicant are, you know, back to CAD5, which is the policy, the governing policy. And very interesting, they define social media as websites, applications, and web-based tools that allow the creation and exchange of user-generated content. That's super broad. (laughs) So I would imagine, Lindy, that you hear the term social media, that's not, you know, Urban Spoon and TripAdvisor and Pandora. Those are not the websites that you think about, right? Because to show though, I mean, that was like, I feel like, wasn't that 1990, Sean? Like all of those things that you listed. And that's why pointing to any policy around an actual platform, you feel bad for these government agencies who are trying to piecemeal it together, you know, and give their investigators actionable kind of boundary lines in terms of what is acceptable to look up and what isn't. I mean, again, and without seeing kind of the updated federal investigative standards that are used across DCSA, which would be applicable to most of the clearance population. I don't know how they're framing it, but I know for a security clearance holder, I mean, I used to do media training for the military and my money takeaway for all these general officers was like, Google yourself. I mean, just do it. Nobody, nobody wanted to be that vain, but know what's out there because, you know, you are a public figure and the public does care about you. I feel like wherever your name is online in terms of social networking writ large, whatever we're defining that as, that would be potential fodder. Now we obviously have, I mean, again, we can go down so many different questions around deep fakes and other issues, but just knowing, hey, if an investigator finds something about you online, you could be in a sense having to defend whether or not it is legitimate, whether it was a post by you, and just be ready to do that by knowing what's out there when you do search your name. You know, that brings us to, I think the next thing that we need to touch on, which is you know, what can't the government do? And fortunately, there are some limits in the policy, including, you know, the government cannot require you or request you to provide passwords to social media accounts. They can't force you to log into a private account or to take any action that would disclose non-publicly available social media information. So the takeaway that I have from a legal perspective for that is, you know, make your stuff private. I mean, that's that's the first order of business. If you've got social media accounts like Facebook, like you know traditional social networking sites that you can make private, do that. It's not to say that everybody who makes their account private is trying to hide something. But you know, if you don't want the government prying on certain aspects of your private life, that I think is understandable for most of us. And the way to put a limit on some of that or, or put a lid on it is to just make your stuff private. They're only looking at publicly accessible, publicly available information. This is not an invitation or an authorization for the government to read your emails, pry into private messaging apps or anything that would be non-public. For those sorts of things, they would need some evidence of criminal conduct or a counterintelligence concern, and then they would have to get a warrant. Yeah, no, I think that's important to remember. And that is outlined in the seed that the government is not going to be asking for your username and passwords. That's clearly a red flag. If they're asking to do that, what they are potentially looking at are things that are publicly available. And any person looking for a job, let alone a security clearance job, should have some idea of what is out there. And you've written some great articles with kind of tips about that around the what security clearance holders should and should not post. We have a lot of information like that over at clearancejobs.com. So if you're wondering, just from a career perspective, let alone a security clearance perspective about being safe in terms of what you post online, definitely check out those resources and content over at Clearance Jobs. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. 
Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.